I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about the U.S.-China postponed trade deal review, and we'll talk about the U.S.-China FTA. Plus, how would we possibly get through an episode without talking about Huawei and U.S. technology? All that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, this is the beach edition of the trade guys, because one of the trade guys is at an undisclosed beach on the East Coast. That would be trade guy Scott Miller. Yes, we can we can limit it the Atlantic Ocean Beach. It's an Atlantic Ocean Beach. But it's as much hint as we can get at the, at the moment due to security concerns. That's right. Right. You're at an undisclosed location. We would not want to disclose that because we'd have to whisk you away because we have important matters to talk about here. And thank you for joining us. Let's just get to it. The U.S. and China postponed the trade deal review. So what's the significance of the review talks getting postponed? Well, it looks to me like the, they've dodged a potentially embarrassing story. The reason it's embarrassing is pretty obvious. The U.S. and China made an agreement. The agreement included quantitative purchases. Okay, And what everybody celebrated, what at least the president and his allies celebrated, were specific numerical goals and targets for purchases of specific U.S. agricultural and non-ag products. Now, that was done in an environment sort of full-on economy in both the U.S. and China. And then COVID hit, and uh, both economies basically fell into recession, or or, uh, trade declined sharply and consumption demand declined sharply in both markets. And when you make a numerical goal based on one set of assumptions and those assumptions crumble, those numbers get very, very difficult to meet. So I think that rather than having to come out and say, we're not on track, uh, the easiest thing is to postpone. That's what I would have done. Yeah, but the peculiar thing about it is that they don't have to admit that it's not working. Uh, They haven't admitted that it's not working for the last six months. I mean, every time Lighthizer has been asked about this, even every time uh, Kudlow has been asked about this, the response has been, uh, we're pleased with the progress. You know, things are going fine. There was no reason why they couldn't have said that again. My first thought was that what they said about it might actually be true, namely that there were scheduling issues. Uh, that's probably not true, but at the time I, I thought maybe it was, partly because Liu He might have had to go to Beidahe, which is the you know, the annual party conference at, at their beach, actually. This is the beach where they have to, like, take the seawater. They, they have to cordon off yes. the party cordons off the seawater that's that's unswimmable to the seawater that is swimmable. And they actually bring fresh salt water to pools nearby because the water is so polluted. This is why I vacation in the United States. Yeah. But the rumor was Liu Ha would be there. So I believe them. And then, of course... The president, our president, got into it and said, well, I'm tired. I canceled it because I don't want to talk to China right now, which was a very strange thing to say. And I think ultimately they'll have it and they'll have it after China has made a number of large agriculture purchases, which they're doing. And they will put a happy face on it again and say, uh, we're making progress. I mean, I, I continue uh, not to be an optimist that they'll make the target, but to be an optimist that they'll do better than they've been doing. 
you know, the reality is that, that as far as agriculture is concerned in particular, historically, the Chinese make most of their purchases in the fourth quarter. That's coming up. It's the crop cycle. You know, the fall crops are in, they buy. So that doesn't mean they're going to make the goal because they're far behind. But I think if you look at this in December, it's going to be a prettier picture than it is now. And after all, why would they ever want to admit that it's failed? You know, well, if they admit that it's right. failed, all you're doing is giving the Democrats another issue. You know, you caused all this collateral damage and you got nothing. They have to pretend that it's working. Well, and you're right about it. It may not fail at all. They may catch up on purchases, partly because China's economy is recovering from the COVID uh, trough, but partly because it's China's economic interest to make these purchases. I mean, they're, they're better off economically if they buy what they said they were going to buy. So ultimately, our interests and theirs are the same. But I think you're right about avoiding a negative story is a helpful thing at the moment. Well, but do the rising tensions between China and the U.S. really jeopardize, you know, getting the deal done and ultimately? Well, I think it jeopardizes getting the new deal done, but that seems to be off the table anyway. I mean, I've, I've said all along that my experience with the Chinese has been is when you get them to make uh, quantitative commitments with deadlines, they usually honor them because, one, it's measurable if they don't, and there's a significant embarrassment if they don't. Uh, and so if they say, by this date, we are going to do this thing, they usually do it. I mean, they got a built-in excuse, COVID, not to get there, but I think that they will make a significant effort to reach the goals they committed to because it's awkward for them um, if they don't, I mean, the one place where they're behind and I don't think there's that they can catch up no matter what they do, although they certainly have tried this week, uh, is on energy. Because, I mean, the, the agriculture stuff is seasonal and, you know, you don't expect every month to be the same. With energy, you kind of do expect every month to be the same. Uh, and it wasn't. Uh, and this week, I think there's what they've got six tankers full or seven tankers full of American oil heading off to China, which is you know, a significant purchase, but I, it's hard to see how they can meet that commitment. But the other stuff, they certainly can do better than they have been. And I think they probably will. Well, Americans aren't going to like the COVID excuse because, you know, just this week we saw pictures of, you know, pool parties in Wuhan. So, you know, <laughs> well, yeah. what's up with that? Well, look, without a report, nobody has to make an excuse. So there's that. But second, I, I'm inclined to think that as tense as the relationship is, with China on many fronts, and as unfavorably as Americans view China, I wouldn't be surprised if six months from now we're saying the area of stability and predictability is the trade relationship. Right at the moment, you have continuity in the players, then the players respect each other. Ambassador Lighthizer and his Chinese counterpart have high respect for each other and seem to be dealing in a forthright manner. So that may be the one point of stability. Who knows? Do we know whether Xi Jinping and Trump have respect for each other? Can't say. Or is this unknown? Can't say. <laughs> I don't want to go into that. That would be at, at everyone's peril. Okay. All right. So I guess this means that we're going to hear more from Kudlau that everything's fine. We're going to hear more from the Chinese that, you know, we're moving this along. What do you guys think is ultimately going to happen here? Well, look, there's, a, there's high livelihood. It's a two-year commitment. And that over the course of the two years, I think China will meet its numerical targets uh, or get very close to them, we get close enough to them to be able to squint and say we did it uh, for the reasons Bill argued earlier, which is when you get them to commit numerically, they tend to 
deliver on those. Are there consequences if they don't meet the targeted purchase projections? Well, that's a good question. If Trump wins the election, probably, because that's the way he operates. If Biden wins, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think that Biden is going to repudiate the deal and let them off the hook. But uh, I don't think his approach to their failure to comply would be exactly the same. Plus, you know, uh, it won't be his deal. If it fails, it won't be his fault. So I think that he'll take a different attitude towards it. All right. Well, meanwhile, we've got some other things going on in the region. U.S.-Taiwan free trade agreement. How is China going to react to the U.S. and Taiwan starting negotiations? And, and how are they going to react to a deal? This doesn't seem like this is too healthy for the U.S.-China trade relationship. Well, I think you're getting well ahead of the facts and circumstances by trying to assume that there will be a successful agreement. Look, we're an important trading partner for Taiwan, but uh, there has been what the trade geeks call a trade and investment framework agreement. That is sort of a, a plan to discuss trade and investment issues for about 25 years or more. I think 1994 was the inception of the U.S.-Taiwan Trade and Investment Framework Agreement. And that's uh, and we've been talking ever since then. And so there, there have been high-level meetings in at least uh, the Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama administrations. We'll see what happens from there. But uh, usually when talks drag on, when you have a TIFA but don't really get anywhere on a free trade agreement, there are usually reasons, and I think there are here as well. Uh, so I'm personally a skeptic that this will wind up with an agreement that would be particularly troubling to anybody, including China? I think the answer to your question is, you know, how will they react to uh, announcement of, of a negotiation badly? How will the Chinese react to an agreement? Very badly. But I think both of those things are, are far off. I think that this is an interesting case of we've had an excuse not to do this for years. Uh, and it's been an excuse, but it happens to be a true re excuse. Uh, and that's the ractopamine ban. Ractopamine is a hormone or a an additive that the United States uses in pig production. And uh, it's been banned in a number of countries, ostensibly for health reasons. There's an argument about that. Uh, the United States apparently does not believe that in small quantities that it's dangerous to public health because we don't ban it. Taiwan has banned it. The result of it banning it means that we can't ship pork to Taiwan. This has been a very controversial issue in Taiwan. Uh, there's been legislation in Taiwan on this. It's not simply the whim of the government. There have been public protests when there was an effort to uh, ease the ban. It's a very controversial issue there. And for the time that Scott has been talking about, for most of that time, the United States has used it as a reason why we don't embark on a bilateral trade negotiation. Now, at one level, it's sort of an excuse. It allows us to say that we're not going to negotiate with them because we have this problem. And that's convenient because then we don't have to get into the question of uh, negotiating with Taiwan and irritating China and jeopardizing what is really a much larger relationship. And there's no sign of that changing. There's no sign that I know of that the Taiwanese are going to change their view about ractopamine. It actually is a real issue, but I think at the same time, it's an excuse. Bottom line, I don't think anything's going to happen anytime soon on this. Yeah, ractopamine is an additive. It's a basically a chemical that is given to pigs that basically makes the meat leaner when they're butchered. So it's a, it basically stimulates adrenaline production. So when you slaughter the hog, you have more lean meat and less fat. 
So it creates a preferred product. There's a lot of research on rectopamine. Unfortunately, here's where the U.S. standard, which is, I think, 50 parts per billion, as a safe level in food for humans, it differs from the global standard, which is 10 parts per billion. And then Taiwan takes it yet another step and bans its presence uh, entirely. So there's been an ongoing debate about what is actual science-based food safety requirement here. It doesn't help that the North American standard, all pork can have 50 parts per billion and it's seen as safe in all countries. But the Codex standard or the global standard is different and Taiwan takes it all the way to a ban. And as Bill points out, legislative ban. Now, the fact is Taiwan has a lot of farmers and, and their voters as well there, which happens in Taiwan, and they're fairly effective politically. And of course, the U.S. is is so competitive in agriculture. We have comparative advantage of this huge, fertile country. So uh, a lot of it may be protection, but ultimately, uh, we're not going to get much of anywhere in a trade negotiation unless Taiwan's willing to negotiate on agriculture. That's always been the sticking point. Uh, and will be into the future. So that's why I'm so skeptical this will reach a positive conclusion for anybody to be upset about. So, Scott, I had ribs last night. Am I going to die? <laughs> you are not. Okay. In fact, uh, no, no American has ever died from this to uh, the best of the industry's knowledge. Uh, so I think you're fine. There's a lot of things out there that can kill you. Rectopamine's not one of them. This is a little TMI for me, the, the whole dissection of the medicine that goes to the hogs. But let me ask you this. What's the upside for the U.S. in having an FTA with Taiwan? What's the real benefit? Well, let's see. Congress would like the exports, uh, particularly farm exports. Most of what Taiwan buys from the United States now travels duty-free to Taiwan under the information technology. Yeah, I was going to say, don't we already have this like in practice? We do on many key products. Uh, Most of the industrial goods trade between the U.S. and Taiwan happens at either zero tariffs for the information technology products or very low tariffs. So, So for practical purposes, there's not a lot of gain Uh, There is gain, at least foreseen in agriculture, but in the grand scheme of world food consumption, Taiwan's relatively small because of the population size. And it may help the politics that this thing is always stuck on agriculture. You know, this isn't about economics. I was going to say that this isn't at all. It's got to be about something else. Taiwan badly wants it because they want to cement the relationship they have with us. And it further legitimizes them as as a separate entity. And they're losing diplomatic relations in other parts of the world as the Chinese come in and try to persuade countries that have recognized Taiwan to reverse themselves. So, you know, Taiwan is looking out for agreements everywhere that it can. I don't see a big economic advantage for us in doing it. I guess if you're if you want to poke the Chinese in the eye with something, this would be a good way to do that because they would certainly be upset about it. And, you know, if you look at the dynamic inside the Trump administration right now, there's a lot of people that would like to do that, if only for its own sake. You know, they're the enemy and we need to stick it to them every way we can. That has not consistently prevailed with the president, but you never know with him. Well, what would we expect different from a Biden administration if Biden wins? Well, look, the Bush 43 administration and the Obama administration had a very similar pattern on this, which is they politely talked and exchanged information with Taiwan under the TIFA and never got anywhere. And so uh, that looks to me to be the trajectory of this negotiation when you leave it to the trade people. From the politics standpoint, uh, my inclination would be a Biden administration would be less inclined to make an overt stick in the eye like this would be, but remains to be seen. 
I agree with that. I mean, if the Taiwanese wanted to make our lives difficult, they could adopt the U.S. standard for ectopamine uh, and take away our excuse. Now, as I said, there are political reasons in Taiwan why that's hard for them to do because their, their public would not be happy about it. But that would put us in an awkward position because we would no longer have an excuse not to have a negotiation. Well, Taiwan's largest trading partner isn't us. It's China, correct? And we're number two, you know, with 2A trade and goods services amounting to about 94, $95 billion in 2018. So, you know, again, this is a really symbolic here, right? Sure. Yeah. And think of the amount of that trade that's in arms sales right. or military hardware. You know, there's an important relationship there. But a free trade agreement is complicated for both sides and uh, probably, as I said at the outset, stuck for a reason. Okay. Finally, we can't get through a Trade Guys episode these days without talking about Huawei. So what's going on now? The U.S. and Huawei, what's the basis for the fear that 5G development and other current U.S. policies you know, are going to be affected by Huawei? There was just a graphic example of that that I heard a few minutes ago, and that was the story of when the Chinese built a building for the African Union, I guess in Addis Ababa, uh, which turned out to be supplied with Huawei communications with, I guess, links right back to the Chinese government. And everything that was being said in the building was going back to the Chinese intelligence services. That is what the uh, security people are concerned about, that it's a hardware and, and software combination. And if it is used in the United States, it will provide backdoors that the Chinese security services will A, be able to access and take it a step further, might potentially be able to shut down offensively uh, if they wanted to do that. You don't find a lot of dispute in the United States that there's a security risk here. Right. I mean, doesn't everybody agree? And, you know, by announcing these new curbs on Huawei's access to U.S. tech, this seems like a really a bipartisan issue. This isn't a fractured issue, is it? Yeah, look, I, I've only heard from sort of career government officials who know this stuff, and all of them are very concerned about the security dimensions of this. So this is not a partisan issue. It's not a Trumpian issue. It's a genuine security issue. It's one that is not only held by us, but also our key allies abroad. And the most recent move was in the United Kingdom, but there are other concerns as well. And look, I think the most important thing uh, that the U.S. can do, whether or not it's right to block chip sales, I, I'll leave that to the experts. But we ought to sort of start purchasing from somebody. I mean, basically, there are two other consolidators, two other businesses in the in the space that so Huawei's Ericsson in. So Ericsson and Nokia? Yeah. And I'd be happier if we just figure out which one of those had had the better technical basis to succeed and start buying, okay? Commercialize the thing, get the installations going, and have a successful demonstrated rival network so we can encourage other people to buy it instead of Huawei. Why, with all of our technical capabilities, are we relying on foreign companies? I mean, this is Huawei is a foreign company. Nokia and Ericsson are all foreign companies. Like, why can't we do this ourselves? Well, there's a movement underway to do that by going to a software-based technology, open RAN, rather than a hardware-based technology. Uh, and that has some controversies. The, the attorney general thinks that it's not viable. 
But I think what you see uh, both in Congress via various pieces of legislation, and there's an upcoming hearing involving the FCC, as I recall, an effort to try to uh, give open RAN technology a boost because it's software based, which means it's something that we can do here. And it doesn't involve uh, Huawei or Ericsson or Nokia equipment. There are drawbacks. Uh, we need to yes, se- spend uh, a separate episode on that, I think, if you want to get into yes, it. Yes, and American companies are definitely involved, but not at the equipment consolidation level. The top level is basically Huawei, Nokia, and Ericsson. At the next level down, which is the component supplies, there are many U.S. manufacturers at that level. So it's not that U.S. is absent from this. It's just a set of business development circumstances of business strategy choices that got American companies out of it. And Bill's right. Attorney General Barr was general counsel for Verizon after he left office in Bush 41. There's a symmetry here, though, that's worth mentioning. And that is, in the end, it all comes back to semiconductors. It comes back to chips. The thing that the U.S. did yesterday with Huawei that was controversial was that it plugged a loophole in its restrictions that it had left last May when it first imposed the restrictions on on chip sales to Huawei. Because what it said in May was that they required an export license, which means effectively they prohibited the exports of chips made with U.S. equipment if they were made uh, pursuant to designs that came from Huawei which is what had been happening. Huawei would design the chips and then they would contract with TMSC and various other companies to make the chips. And the U.S. law, which is extraterritorial, said that these companies are making the chips with U.S. equipment. And if they're Huawei designed, you can't do that. That, of course, left out the possibility that they could buy chips that were not Huawei designed. And what the U.S. did yesterday was plug that loophole and say that any chips anywhere uh, as long as they're manufactured on U.S. equipment, which is almost all the chips in the world, as it turns out, can no longer go to Huawei. This is going to be a huge blow uh, for Huawei. And the semiconductor companies are bitterly complaining about it because they lobbied extensively not to have that happen last May. The reason being is that they sell billions of dollars of low-level chips to Huawei to go into their cell phones, go into Bluetooth and other things like that that probably don't provide a security risk and are low end. And this is all going to be be cut off. So those people are upset. Uh, at the same time, go back to what we just said about Open RAN. Open RAN is going to depend on lots and lots of semiconductor chips to operate the system that's going to be created. So one of the things the United States does have to worry about is, as it has been worrying about for 30 years, is the health of its semiconductor sector. Because you want a semiconductor sector here that is able to meet our needs. Uh, And what the industry is saying is if you take away billions of dollars of sales to Huawei and all of its subsidiaries, you're going to cripple our ability to do more R&D. And I think they've got a good point. So in the short run, this plugs a loophole. In the short run, this hurts Huawei. In the long run, it may very well hurt us just as badly. But complicated issue, but an ongoing issue and one that probably deserves its own episode. Well, let's do that next time because we are out of time. Fascinating discussion as always, gentlemen. Scott, go back to the undisclosed beach. Bill, I'll see you at the pool and we'll be back right here. Same time, same bat channel on The Trade Guys. To our listeners, 
If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.